0: Jacob is on the run after 20 years of servitude to his father-in-law Laban Jacob and his huge new family 11 sons one daughter his wives Rachel and Leah plus their maidservants and everyone else in the entourage are making haste back to the land of Canaan it was not what we might consider a clean getaway Laban is chasing them from behind and up ahead is Esau Jacob's long-lost estranged brother with an army waiting to greet them in the middle A mysterious being waiting to wrestle Jacob through a long night. The third Jewish patriarch is in the midst of a hero's journey home, one fraught with danger. But if he can make it, the beginning of the rest of Jewish history. I'm your host, Jason Harris, and this is Jew I Don't Know. I would say to young people that you can do everyone our share to redeem the world. We've got Jacob and his family living in the land of Aram, around present-day Syria, so northeast of the land of Canaan. Jacob is technically an indentured servant to Laban. He's working for Laban, remember, in exchange for getting to marry his daughters. So Laban feels a sense of ownership over Jacob. But after 20 years now, it's time for Jacob and his family to make the move back to Canaan so Jacob and Laban enter into negotiations over how Jacob is to be paid for his service. To make a really long story short, nobody really acts in good faith during these negotiations, but Laban is the much worse side. He's benefited enormously from Jacob's free labor over the years, so he keeps changing the terms of the deal to make it harder for Jacob to leave, refusing to acknowledge Jacob's agency. Laban's sons falsely accuse Jacob of trying to seize Laban's wealth and things get so tense that God finally comes to Jacob and says, look, just go home already. Leave now. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, the former chief rabbi of the United Kingdom, calls Laban the first anti-Semite in history. It's a really interesting take. Rabbi Sachs' position is that Laban's behavior towards Jacob mirrors that of the later nations towards the Jews. First, they take in Jews fleeing persecution as Jacob was fleeing the wrath of Esau but in pretending to accept the Jews on humanitarian grounds, these societies actually use the Jews to benefit their own economies, as Laban did, and deny the Jews fundamental civil rights, as Laban did in seeing Jacob merely as his servant. When the Jews, like Jacob, persist in trying to maintain their success and dignity, these nations turn against them, accusing the Jews of exploitation and theft, like Laban's sons did. Jacob, then, is the classic conspicuously successful minority. Surrounded as he is by Laban's much larger family, and for that he is resented in the way that Jews would come to be resented under the Egyptian, Greek, Roman, Christian, Muslim, and European empires and nations. From this episode, says Rabbi Sachs, Jacob becomes the archetype of freedom and the eternal paradigm of the human capacity to survive hatred. In refusing to define himself as a slave and to submit to the will of Laban's capricious envy, jacob sets an example for the jewish people and all other minorities for perseverance and human dignity the boy who deceived his father for a birthright is now the man who exemplifies the freedom from persecution but in the meantime jacob and his family have to get out of aram by the way rachel and leah are totally on jacob's side they are angry at their father for treating them like strangers so like me at a party they all leave without saying goodbye definitely without saying goodbye, and it's three days before Laban realizes what has happened. He chases after them with the intent of bringing Jacob back into servitude. But right before he overtook them, God comes to Laban and says, watch yourself. Do not say anything good or bad to Jacob. Laban and Jacob meet and have, as you can imagine, a huge argument. Jacob argues that he has served Laban for 20 years, 14 in exchange for his daughters, and another six tending his flock, and Laban has become rich and yet was prepared to send Jacob away with nothing and Laban famously responds with all that you see is mine He denies even that Jacob's children are his own that they actually belong to Laban as part of Jacob's servitude Ultimately though scared of God's warning Laban and Jacob agreed to go their separate ways as amicably as possible They build a stone altar to use as a kind of border post Jacob staying to the lands on one side and Laban on the other and neither are allowed to cross over so thus ends one saga on this long journey home to canaan having finally freed himself from laban's servitude jacob now has to confront another problem esau the last time he saw his brother was when he stole his birthright and blessing from their father and esau had sworn to kill jacob the first chance he got so jacob sent some scouts up ahead who reported back that esau was coming to meet jacob with 400 men an army Jacob was pretty freaked out. But he also had a plan. He divided all his people and animals into two camps, thinking that if Esau attacked, at least half of Jacob's family and wealth would survive. Out of fear, he prayed to God to save him and his family, promising to do good and to make God's people as plentiful as the sand of the sea. In other words, to fulfill the covenant. He also prepared a large gift for Esau, hundreds of goats and camels and sheep and bulls, and gave them to his servant with instructions to put some distance between them. In other words, Jacob hung back to make sure that he could still get away if Esau rejected the gift and killed the servant. He even sent his family up ahead, and so now Jacob was alone in the wilderness. It's never a good idea to be alone in the wilderness. The last time Jacob was alone, he jumped at the stairway to heaven. This time, there wouldn't be a dream, Instead, all night long, Jacob wrestled with a man. The Torah does not record the nature of this man. Was he just a man, or an angel, or was it God? At dawn, the man demanded to be released, but Jacob refused to let go until he received this man's blessing. And so, in chapter 32, verse 29 of the book of Genesis, we get introduced to a name that will be with us for the next 3,000 years. Israel the man tells Jacob that from this point forward he will be called Israel because he has wrestled with both God and men and had prevailed. Whoever he was, Jacob was sure that he had wrestled with God and that his life had been spared. This episode in the Torah is both one of the most famous and also the most mysterious. We don't know who Jacob really wrestled with. If it was a man, then some commentators suggest that it might have been Esau. Maybe the brothers decided to fight things out in a duel instead of bringing in their respective armies. Not expecting the weaker Jacob to win against his hunter-gatherer brother, Esau bestowed the name Israel on Jacob in recognition of him prevailing in the fight. It would explain, spoiler alert, why Esau embraced Jacob the next day instead of waging war against him. But if the being was God, as Jacob clearly believed after the fact, then there was the suggestion that Jacob was wrestling with himself. If you read the actual section in the torah it is really unclear who is saying what to whom throughout the match this ambiguity leaves open the interpretation that jacob was wrestling with his inner self since all of us humans are created in the image of god i said in the last episode that jacob's dream of the stairway to heaven was the beginning of his transition from deceitful boy to one of the great jewish heroes wrestling with god or himself completes the transformation because let's look at what changed first he deceived his father in pretending to be esau then rather than confronting esau he ran away then rather than arguing with laban after he switched wives on him jacob agreed to a further seven years of indentured servitude then again rather than confront laban when he wanted to leave he snuck out in the middle of the night but now he faced his demons perhaps literally and fought to the bitter end for the first time jacob chooses not to run from a struggle Instead, he embraces it, and by prevailing through the confrontation does he earn his new name. Jewish sages for the last couple thousand years have not been shy about interpreting the story as a metaphor not only for Jacob's internal struggles, but for the greatest Jewish people as well. The journey Jacob takes in life is one that all humans take, one filled with missteps, steep learning curves, fear and ambiguity, spiritual encounters, a longing to live free, struggles that we win and others that we lose, It's fair to say that Jacob is the most like us of all the Jewish patriarchs. And that's why we are called the Israelites, and not the Abrahamites or the Isaacites. We're named after Jacob. The idea of wrestling, whether with God or our inner selves, or maybe those two are the same thing, that's an essential part of Jewish identity. That's why we encourage people to argue in group discussions on birthright. In the morning, not too much the worse for wear except for a permanent limp that he got in the fight, Jacob prepared to confront his brother. Jacob approached Esau and bowed down to him. Pretty extraordinary gesture, since the prophecy was clear even in the womb that Jacob would be the master over his older brother. Esau ran up to Jacob, embraced him, perhaps kissed him, and they cried together. Jacob introduced Esau to his family, insisted upon giving him gifts, and refused Esau's offer to have his men help Jacob's family travel with all their gear and livestock. It was quite the reunion, a rare biblical reconciliation. And throughout, Jacob made himself humble before Esau, referring to him in formal terms as Jacob's master and superior. Once again, the once cocky boy who stole Esau's birthright has now, through his own life trials and tribulations, come into the humility of adulthood, and perhaps recognized the wrong he did in his early years. Esau was under the impression that the brothers, now united, would travel onwards together, But Jacob declines, and they go their separate ways. We'll hear from Esau once more when he and Jacob meet again to bury their father, Isaac, in the cave in Hebron. But otherwise, Esau now recedes into history. We know he produces descendants of his own. But for a figure much maligned in Jewish history, blamed as the forefather of just about every nation that ever harmed the Jews and all of whose actions in the Torah are ascribed to nefarious reasons, I think we can say that he at least comes out looking pretty decently in the end here. He could easily have taken revenge on Jacob, but he didn't. He embraced the younger brother who greatly harmed him and even looked forward to continuing along his journey together. Juxtapose his actions with that of an earlier set of brothers, Cain and Abel, and to me it seems like Jewish tradition has humanity moving right along, tempering our baser instincts and adopting new traits like forgiveness, humility, and generally just acting like decent adults. So as Esau heads in one direction, Jacob heads in the other, back to Canaan. He and his family settle in the city of Shechem, where, like his grandfather Abraham, Jacob purchases a plot of land, clearly intending to permanently settle in the promised land. I wish I could say that after Jacob's decades-long journey, we have now come to the end of our wandering and will at last settle for good in Canaan. But since there are still some 23 books left in the Torah, that's probably not going to happen. And in fact, we have not even come to the end of Jacob's story, or amazingly, even the end of the book of Genesis. Although Jacob is now going to enjoy a long stretch living in the Promised Land, it's not going to go that well. Remember a few minutes ago when Jacob promised to fulfill various obligations if God rescued him from Esau? Well, God did, and now it's Jacob's turn. God tells Jacob to go to a place called Bethel and to build an altar to God in recognition of God's protection during Jacob's flight from Esau. I haven't really talked about altars much, though they appear often throughout the Torah. An altar is built to demonstrate respect to God, and as a site for worship. But beyond that, to also epitomize the singularity of God. Remember, Canaan is pagan. Most of the world is. And this family, started by Abraham, who seemed to worship just one God, they're very few in number. All these altars that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob build around the Promised Land are like a trail of breadcrumbs testifying to God's relationship with humans. See, they say, this one all-powerful God did something for me in this place. They therefore have the effect of supplanting pagan land for a site that is now associated with God, in effect claiming that land as a new kind of sacred space. And in fact, Jacob tells his household, get rid of your alien gods, purify yourselves, and change your clothes, because we are going to Bethel to build an altar to God, who helped me when I was in distress, and who has been with me everywhere I have gone. These alien gods were probably small household idols that people used for worship and, along with some other amulets, are destroyed. At Bethel, Jacob builds the altar and God tells him again that no longer will he be known as Jacob, but now will be called Israel. God repeats the covenant, with which we are by now pretty familiar. A nation of people will descend from Jacob, and the promised land will remain with his descendants. God says, I like this phrase, God says, The land that I assign to Abraham and Isaac, I assign to you and your offspring to come. Having completed the task, Jacob and his family set out for home. But tragedy strikes. Rachel, Jacob's favorite wife, the one whom he loved more than her sister Leah, goes into labor with her second child, Jacob's 13th. A boy is born, but Rachel is dying from the pain of labor. And as she breathed her last breath, she names the child Benoni, which means child of sorrow, or perhaps child of pain, expressing the fact that she knew she was about to die. But Jacob didn't want to think about her death every time he looked at their son, and he wanted their son to remind him of Rachel's love and her positive attributes. So in a tribute to her, he renames the boy Benjamin, which means child of strength rather than bring her body back to the cave of Machpelah, where all the other patriarchs and matriarchs, including Jacob, would be buried, Jacob buries her on the side of the road where she died. He built a stone pillar to mark her grave, which, at the time this story was recorded in the Torah about a thousand years later, was still there. And in fact, Rachel's tomb is still there, just outside Bethlehem, a few miles south of Jerusalem. It is the third holiest site in Judaism. Tradition has it that whenever the Jews have been exiled from Jerusalem, they have marched past her grave on their way out of the Promised Land. As she cried for the misfortune of her children, they found consolation in her presence. Although she lies alone, men and women continue to visit her as a symbol of eternal love and a great source of comfort. According to Chabad, Rachel is the ultimate Jewish mother. Next week, we'll go back in time just a little bit to tell a harrowing story about Jacob's only daughter, Dina, and then start getting into a story you are probably all slightly familiar with, Joseph and his coat of many colors. Have a great week!